This is the Scale with Psychology podcast, where you're going to optimize your psychology to exponentially scale your business and become the ultimate version of yourself. I'm your host, Ani Manian, widely known as the Mind Whisperer and trusted advisor and psychedelic therapist to the world's top entrepreneurs and leaders. And I believe that entrepreneurship is a mental game. And the main constraint in any business is not the strategies and tactics, but the psychology of the founder. And with each episode, I'm going to help you take your life in business to levels you never thought possible. If you're ready to play the game of life and business in God mode, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome. My guest today has been a healer her whole life. Her passion for oriental medicine was so great that she attempted to enroll in a master's degree program at the age of 15. When she realized that she'd have to finish high school first, she responded by finishing two bachelor's degrees in the same time that most people take to finish one. Her desire to serve was so great that she immediately joined the AmeriCorps National Service in Colorado, where she served as a birth coach and medical translator, learning from both midwives and doctors. She's taught lectures in Spanish on pregnancy and childbirth and had the honor of helping countless underprivileged women who would have otherwise been alone or had no one to translate for them during birth. She followed her service with a long-awaited master's and doctorate in integrative medicine. She's a one-stop shop for all things related to holistic healing. She's an expert on using fasting as a means of treating pain and chronic illness. She is the first and only person to describe the birthing process in such a deeply spiritual way that I actually wish that I was a woman so I could experience it. She's a doctor (laughs) of acupuncture and oriental medicine, and one of her patients Describe the session with her as an hour-long hug. That was my favorite testimonial of all time. <laughs> I'm proud to call her a friend and grateful for her presence on this earth. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Debbie Wong. Thanks for having me. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I've been excited for this conversation since we first met. And I've met very few people who've known when they were very, very young, when they were kids, what they wanted to be, and they actually become that. Tell me about that. You wanted to know that you 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 were a healer, you wanted to be a healer your whole life, and here you are living this truth, this reality. What was that like for you? It was like... When I was little and I would play, all my play was related to healing or understanding plants and how they could be used as medicine. And there was just such a strong attraction to that my whole life. That was the one thing that was always clear for me. And so it just was easy to find my way to it. And it had to be healing in a way that was natural. It was in tune with the body's own healing processes, not forcing the body in one way or another, but encouraging the body towards balance. Mm. And, you know, in this world we live in, there seems to be such a conflict between how this modern society wants us to treat our bodies, consider the idea of wellness, and how our body naturally wants to be treated. And you play with this dichotomy, with this distinction in, in your professional life. How does... How does this work out in in your work? Well, the difference between healing that's holistic and healing that's not is that in holistic healing, the patient takes a lot of responsibility over their own healing. So there's a lot of teaching and education and showing people all the healing that's possible, all the potential that they have for their healing. And then they can go as deep down that path as they want to, and you're guiding them. So I tell my patients, I'm only with you for an hour. You know, so we'll make the most out of this hour and then you go back to your life and you have to take as many of these lessons and these practices with you as you can 
so that you can transform and you can heal versus I give you this pill, this pill acts on you, you do nothing but take the pill and then have a response. So the patient in this case is active. And what sort of things do you see on a regular basis that's really a symptom of what's ailing us as a society? Stress. Mm. Stress. Almost everybody is stressed out. And this is something that almost anyone can relate to. Like, you know, we deal with stress to such an extent that this has almost become normalized. Yes. Yeah. It would be abnormal to say, for a person to say, I'm not stressed out, I'm at peace. Nobody mm. says that. And nobody, when they say it, nobody means that because, you know, on one hand, we greet each other, we ask how we are, how the other person is, and everyone's like, good, I'm good, I'm great, right? But that's usually hiding a lot of the reality that's, that's taking place underneath. And as you said, there's almost a stigma to be just genuinely in a good place. And yeah. that's something that really struck me about you, that, you know, you have this light, you have this joy, you have this... Um, wonderful energy and you seem to be so content with your life you've built a beautiful life for yourself um, you feel so connected to your work and it seems like a foreign concept to a lot of people yeah right in this world where everything is designed to put us under stress from the notifications on our phone yeah. to our work to all the expectations and you know responsibilities that's on us how has that been for you I believe that everybody on earth has a specific purpose that they're meant to fulfill. And I made my purpose at the very center of my life and everything else was a flowering out from that. That is the center. And how did that come to be? I think that's where I find being at peace is when I'm serving and when I'm doing my work because I feel connected to a higher power. So the energy I'm using doesn't feel like it's spending from my own. And you told me you often end up more charged up, more energized after hours and hours yeah. and hours of work. Oh, yeah. So absolutely. I would love for you to describe that because, you know, these days people call it flow state. People yeah. call it, you know, being connected to source. But for a lot of people, this seems to be science fiction, right? Because most people, they expend energy. It's an effortful process to do their work, mm -hmm. right? And they feel drained at the end of it. And this is something that you and I really resonated on, which was, you know, when we both do what we're really called here to do, we end up way more energized than when we started. Oh, absolutely. And so I'd love for you to share your perspective on what that's like for you. It's like, before I start work, I have a lot of rituals that I do, and they're rituals that I do every single day. So I no longer have to think about them. They're built in, they're effortless, just like you wake up and you brush your teeth. So I clean the rooms. Everything I do is with intention. I clean the rooms, preparing them for the day ahead. I spray special oils on the sheets that smell really clean. I light candles. I do a prayer in the bathroom as I wash my hands and get ready for the day and connect to the higher purpose. That is why I chose this as my work in the first place. So I recommit every morning. And then I do those same things in between each patient. So every hour, there's an intention. And there's a ritual and there's a practice. So I feel fresh and reset for each person. And then at the end of the day, I don't know how else to describe it, except that my heart is so full and I feel just so satisfied. And it's almost like there's all this energy that flows through you, using you as a channel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Leaving you more whole and more healed and more enriched in the process. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Now, one of the things that, you know, came up in our original conversation was some of the stories you shared about your family. And, you know, I had tears in my eyes when you were sharing that and I still remember that moment. And I would love, 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 love for you to share um, that piece of history with us that was so profoundly moving and so profoundly inspiring. Okay, I would love to. No. Totally honored to. So um, Ani's talking about the story I told about my grandmother. Her name was Manya, and she was a Holocaust survivor. She was um, captured when she was about 33 years old. She had already been hiding in an attic, her neighbor's attic, for a couple years. And they lived just a few doors down from Anne Frank and her family. And so they were friends. They knew each other. The community was really close. And... Um, 
So what would happen was if a mother of young children arrived at Auschwitz, they immediately would gas the children and also the mother because once the children were gone, the mother wouldn't be able to be a laborer. So knowing that, my grandparents made this heartbreaking decision to smuggle their children out. And a 19-year-old Christian girl who never met my father or my uncle volunteered to smuggle out this two-and-a-half-year-old and six-year-old boys uh, through Nazi lines. And she only had a makeshift fake passport that wasn't of good quality. And there was like a 10% chance that she'd make it to the underground orphanage that was hiding Jewish children. And um, she ended up making it. But meanwhile, my grandparents were still in hiding in this closet and they didn't know if the kids made it there. And so my grandmother with nothing else to do all day and having just given up her boys was going crazy. and was like, I want to go downstairs and call and see if they made it. So my grandfather begged her and begged her, don't do it. You're going to get seen through the window. You're going to get caught. And she's like, I don't care. I'm going. And so she went downstairs to make the phone call. She was immediately caught by a Nazi guard. And then they searched the house and found my grandfather. So that is how they originally got caught and sent to Auschwitz death camp. So when they got there, they separated the men and the women. So that was the last time she saw my grandfather during that process. And, you know, it only took a few months to get starved to the point where you're just 80 pounds and skin and bones and um, they shaved their heads and it was like sub-zero weather, just freezing cold. And they would wake them up at 4.30 in the morning to start laboring and they'd labor until the middle of the night sometimes, going on no food, no sleep, don't know if their children are alive, don't know if their husbands are alive. So she was in that position, and this is the story that, that's the background, this is the story that I first told you about her, was that she was being marched from one part of the camp to the next, as miles and miles apart, and it was freezing cold, and she's just starved almost to death, and she's in this long row of other prisoners marching, and there was guards with clubs and machine guns to make sure that they didn't do anything that was against the rule. And she saw this root vegetable growing up in the grass, like way out of line. But she's thinking, I could grab it and I could bring it back for my friends. It wasn't even for her, it was for her friends. And that was a recurring theme with her. Yes. She was fighting for, even though she had nothing, and yeah. she was starving and she was skin and bones, she was standing up and fighting for everyone else. Yeah. So she sees this out in the distance, and so she waited for the guards to cross the, you know, turn the corner, and then she was going to get out of the line and grab it. So the guard crosses, and she runs out to grab it, and as she has her hand on it, they see her and catch her. So they make her go back to the line, and they say, now because you did that, you have to do the rest of the march holding a chair over your head. And I mean, she's barely able just to do the march because she's so weak at this point. And this is winter, and it's... Yeah, and it's beyond freezing, and they have you know nothing for clothing and not even hair. And so she's carrying this heavy chair over her head. She was a tiny woman, like five foot tall. And at one point, her arms started to shake, and she lowered the chair, and they said, if you drop the chair, we're going to shoot you. And she's like holding it, barely able to hold it up, and a female guard came up to her with a club and hit her across the face, and knocked out her two front teeth. And her response, the response that I've never heard any other human being besides my grandmother, Manya, to have this kind of human spirit. She spit out her two front teeth and she pushed the chair all the way up and she carried it like that all the way back to the camp. So she gets back and her girlfriend sees that her teeth are missing and she's been beaten. And they're like, what happened? And she's like, I almost got us this vegetable I saw. Out in the field, she's like, I'm going to get it tomorrow. And they're like, Manya, please don't try to do it. Please don't do it. They're going to shoot you. You know, you've already lost your front teeth. Please don't promise us you won't do it. She's like, I'll see you tomorrow with the vegetable. <laughs> and so the next day, they went out of March, and she made sure that the guard was far down the corner. She ran out of line, caught it, put it in her clothes, carried it back, and then came back to the camp and was like, I promised. I told you. Here we go. So that was the story that in my mind I think of is don't drop the chair. Because if she had dropped that chair, I wouldn't be here. Wow. Yeah. So um, whenever I am in the middle of 
the part of doing something where it just feels a little beyond what you have to give and you're, you're starting to make excuses for why you think you may want to quit and why you may want to give up. I see my five foot tall, you know, bald and toothless grandma holding a chair over her head in the sub-zero weather in an effort to do something for other people. And she, not only did she survive and finish, she went back the next thing, she got the vegetable. And so I heard that story as a little girl and it just changed my brain. And it made me realize I'm never going to quit anything in my life because it's something difficult because I will never know difficulty like that. So whatever I think I'm going through, I'm not going to drop the chair because Maya didn't drop the chair. So it's possible to never drop the chair. And what can we create and what can we accomplish? We just never drop the chair. Yeah. I, I asked her about it when I, after I heard the story, I said, how did you do that? Weren't you afraid? And uh, I wish I could say it in her accent the way that she said it, because I'll just never oh, yeah. forget it. She goes, fear. <laughs> she goes, fear. Other people have fear. I don't have it. Just don't have any fear. And if you look at the way she lived her life, it's really true. She just lived how all of us would live if we had no fear, making big decisions, making big risks, you know, like dreaming huge, like beyond what would be possible. She made impossible things happen because she didn't have any fear. And a lot of those things were for other people. It was almost entirely for other people. She ended up being able to manipulate this network of Nazi guards. She learned all of their different languages. While she was in prison camp, she learned Czech, Russian, German, and she spoke, she already spoke Yiddish, Hebrew, and some English and Dutch. Wow. <laughs> She's quite the linguist. And um, she and would, she, but she was not, she never went to school or? No, she has a third grade education. She has a third grade education. Yeah, third grade only. Yeah. Um, but she was able to really read people and she was able to study the different guards and know which ones she would be able to manipulate. And after she picked out which ones, she started trading and smuggling things. Wow. And they would start hiding food for her. She had a whole, she became very popular because she was able to get garlic, which was considered penicillin at the time for people that were sick and dying. And she was able to smuggle food even to the male side of Auschwitz through her channels that she created. And that's how she kept her husband alive. Yes. So my grandfather's side of the story, I love this story. He's sitting with his friend and his friend says, Hugo, don't look up. The guards are looking at us. He's like, oh my God, they're walking towards us, but they're just looking at you. And so, you know, they're just being quiet and still intense. And the guards come up to him and they're like, is your name Hugo? And he was like, yes. And he's thinking the next thing that happens is I get shot, you know, he had no idea what was going on. And they're like, we have a present from your wife. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, what? <laughs> they're like, yeah, it's, it's some bread and some soup. And his mind is just blown. He just has no idea what's going on. He has no context for what's happening. And they're like, but before we give it to you, you have to do something for us. And he's like, okay. And they said, what's your Hebrew name? He said, Chaim. They're like, okay, here you go. He's like, your wife said we can't give it to you until you answer the question. Wow. So she knows you're still alive or she wouldn't believe us. So she kept sending food to him and always with a question that he had to answer. And then they come back. And she was smuggling for them, from, for them, um, diamonds and jewels and things that you know they were having to sort from. Because that was her job at the camps. Yeah, taking the gold out of people's teeth and sorting the wedding ring and different jewelry and. Yeah, she was able to trade those things with the guards for medicine and for food, usually for other people. And she kept so many people alive. And she never told anybody about it. She just she just did that because she felt called to do it and never spoke of it. And then years after the war had ended, people would contact my family and, and say, like, are you Manya's son? And my dad would be like, yes. You know, what did she do? <laughs> and they're all concerned. You never know with her. And they're like, well, I just wanted to tell you she saved my life during the war. I had typhus. I was quarantined. I was next to be gassed. And she brought me food and medicine and kept me alive. And we've gotten letters from many, many people that she kept alive. And um, we would ask her, like, why didn't you share with us that you did these heroic things? And she goes, for what does it matter? Like, do what I do. You know, just 
no need for the praise and the, the accolades of that. It's not why she did it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What was it like growing up with her presence, with her stories, with this example of how life can be and how life can be lived? It's fuel. It's just courage and fuel. Um, when I was little, I used to beg her to tell me the stories, but she goes, I don't tell you while you are young. It's not good for your head. You know, she didn't want me to hear the horrors. She saw horrible, horrific things. Um, but I would catch glimpses of stories, you know, from other people telling them. But I could always feel her greatness. She was so tiny, but it was like her energy filled with the whole house. She was just like a whole force of nature, even when she wasn't saying anything. It was just, she was so powerful and just so fearless and super loving too. And we associate power, especially these days, with you know wealth and influence and you know, size and all these all these modern metrics. And here's a tiny woman with barely anything, displaying more courage and more fearlessness than yeah. half the world combined. Can I say the saying that my family has about her? Please. <laughs> we say, if you only had half the balls that grandma had, it's okay because you still have three left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How did that shape your life? You know, when I think of her, the way that I knew her, I think of her dimple and I think of her smile. She always had a glass of wine and she was always just maybe a smidge tipsy and laughing and celebrating. And uh, Esther Farrell, who's just an incredible healer herself, she grew up in a village of Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. And she's written about how she noticed it had one of two effects on people. Either they continue to just only survive because they scarcely survive, or they would go on to fully live. So either people were just surviving, just eating, sleeping, making enough money, or they were just thriving after an experience like that where everything's taken away from you and you're facing your death on a daily basis for years. You know, and for her, for Manya, it was it transformed her into a being that just only celebrates. She was just constantly in a state of celebrating every moment. Anything you did with her, there was the dimple and the big smile and just noticing everything around. Nothing was ever taken for granted. Every bite of food, every moment sitting with a friend was perfect because death could come at any time and she lived that way for years. And she lost, they, between my grandfather and grandmother, they lost 39 members of their family. And they were days away from losing my father. I and mean, he was just right there ready to die when, by the time they were able to come back and get him from the orphanage. So she experienced getting every single thing stripped away from the human being because before the war, they had a wonderful family. They were both really successful. They had tons of friends and they had this beautiful life and it was every single thing was gone and stripped away. And she had to start all over. And within a few years, she got it all back. Her hair grew back. She got teeth. <laughs> she regained her health. She got her children back. She immigrated to America. She learned English. She got a good job. She just built it all back. And she was just always radiating joy. So it was an excellent perspective for me. Anytime I thought like, oh, I'm suffering. This is hard. I don't want to have three jobs to pay for college. I never get to rest. Like Things in my life that I felt were just overwhelming and challenging. I just see her the way she used to smile and radiate joy and i see her in my mind holding the chair with nothing and no promise that things would ever get better and then it just becomes fuel and so that's why i really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about her and tell her story because she can be a healer forever this way yeah i'm the only child living like they had four boys and none of them were able to have kids. My, I'm my dad's only biological child. So I'm like the last one of them. And so I'm so honored to get to tell her story. It's really an honor to, to hear it again. And, you know, I hope everyone listening and watching really takes another listen because, you know, every time I hear you recount this and I see this image of, you know, your 80 pound grandmother shaved, stripped, walking in the snow, sub-zero temperatures, holding up a heavy chair with no teeth, 
probably blood pouring out of her her mouth and refusing, refusing to give in because of what she what she stood for and all the people that she was carrying. Because she probably carried the hopes and the lives of so many people yeah. on her back. She had extra courage and she had extra strength, so she used it to hold the chair for everyone else that was giving up hope. She was holding the chair for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I see her. And even in your life, you chose to step back into that space to help people who didn't have someone fighting for them. Even in your life, when you joined AmeriCorps, yeah. you wanted to hold that chair up for other people. Tell me about that. I have a really soft spot in my heart for immigrants because my grandparents were and my father was. He was 10 when he came here and he was very malnourished. Um, he had scurvy, just like the kids in Africa do, belly big and, you know, his arms and legs. And you can imagine how many problems, yeah. you know, come. And then, you know, when they came here, they didn't have anything. They moved into a dangerous neighborhood that was very anti-Semitic. Mm. So then he went on to be beaten at school for being Jewish and for being the small kid and all these things. So I feel really in touch with the struggle that immigrants have. Because before the war, my grandparents were both professionals and very successful. And they went through all that they went through, had it all stripped away. And then they came here and they were forced to have factory jobs because they don't speak the language. And, you know, the jobs don't always translate to the new place. And so people don't know these are professional people that were affluent and successful. And they get treated like dogs because they're working at the bottom. And so I, I always wanted to do something for immigrants in my life to kind of just, I just know what kind of really difficult struggle that they have. And so you ended up in America or helping immigrant women give birth? Yeah, mostly teenage girls that didn't speak English and many of them, there wasn't a father to go with the baby and they were just truly alone and didn't speak English and didn't understand all the different machines of the hospital or what was happening. You know, every intervention the hospital did, they thought it meant something's wrong with the baby. So I'd always explain, oh, this, they do this to everybody. This doesn't mean anything, you know. This is the standard of care. And so, you know, just explaining to them what's going on, what's happening, what happens next, how you move through this experience and find joy and find depth in it, you know, take an active role in it. So those were my first patient encounters. And I remember you telling me about the experience of giving birth and... I remember being touched beyond words. I'd love for people to hear how you came to that, that awareness. And I'd love to hear you tell that, share that, describe that in your own words. Well, after having so many experiences watching women give birth in the hospital, and those women were largely coming from like farmlands and they were used to just seeing a woman squat in a field and have a baby and there was no machines and no doctors and no intervention, you know, and then seeing their reaction to being plugged into everything and everything's measured and counted and people in and out of the room, bright lights and all of that. As I'm watching these women who really were in touch with their own power get it taken away in a lot of ways, I was like, I don't want to have my babies in the hospital if I don't have to. And then later I worked at Austin Area Birthing Center and that's sort of an in-between, like a compromise. It looks very homey and cozy, and there is all of the medical equipment, but it's tucked away. So it doesn't feel like a medical place. It feels like a bed and breakfast and run by midwives, so all the natural interventions. And so watching a lot of those births, water births, just natural births where the husband was really involved, seeing those sweet moments, like the husband and wife slow dancing is a birth position and just seeing so many beautiful things happen there. I was like, I want my birth to be like this. I want my husband to be giving birth with me, be really involved, not pushed behind me, pushed aside, like he doesn't matter and he's not part of it. And I want to be able to make choices, you know? And, but ultimately I felt like I really wanted it to happen in my own home where I could make most of the choices, you know, unless a medical intervention needs to happen. So we had the same midwife for both of our births. And I found 
you know, when there's nothing plugged into you and there's, you're just in your home where you can feel the most relaxed, that's your sanctuary and you're able to eat and drink as you need to and move around like you want to. Uh, it was very easy for me to tap into that primal hypnotic state that happens when women are untampered with during labor. And, you know, I found myself making like the same head movements that I saw so many women do and the same sounds almost like chanting. And I was like, we're all one, you know, this is, we all do this, every culture, you know, every woman of every age having babies, like if we're untampered with and we're able to tap in to that divine female inside of us and just go down that rabbit hole, we all do the same things, same sounds, same movements. And as I found myself coming into that space, I felt total comfort. I was like, my body knows exactly what to do. I'm just going to soften my being from my heart down and just let go, you know, and just let my body take over. And in the birth video, you can, there's this one part where I'm just looking out in the distance, almost look like I'm on a drug. And I just don't even remember that part because I'd almost left my body. I was in such a high vibrational state. And that's how I remember my births. You know, I, I know there's pain and there's, there's great intensity but that intensity is really our power. I feel like it's a fire we're meant to walk through to prepare us for motherhood. And I know that's probably a controversial thing to say, but I'm glad I had the full experience untampered with because I've never been the same. As a result, I feel so connected to my female power and I needed that to become a mom. Wow. You know, that was the time in my life I held the chair. I remember you using the word surrender and oneness. Yeah. Yeah. Birth is all about surrendering because if you start to become afraid, your body hardens from the womb out. And when that happens, it just doubles your pain. So when I was helping women through birth, the first thing I do is relax their face. You know, when you're in pain, you crumple up your face. So it's smooth out your face mm -hmm. and make the lips really loose. Breathe with total ease and melt down because that just cuts, just that cuts your pain in half. If you can relax your face while you're in pain, it's like a painkiller. And then you can keep moving down your body and let go of everything. And then realize I'm not this body, you know? <laughs> and I'm just tapping into something universal. It's been done countless times. There's nothing to be afraid of at all. Say more about that, I'm not this body. Just that, so you know, pain can kind of trap us in this illusion that we're this body. And pain gives all kinds of pain, gives you the illusion that this is forever. I, this is me now, I'm stuck here, and this is me forever. And it's a very contracting kind of idea, and it's not true. And so the opposite of that is making your energy field grow and be very big, like you breathe for yourself, and then you breathe through the room, and then you breathe through the house, and then the neighborhood you keep expanding until you realize you're actually limitless. And this is just a temporary packaging that we just shouldn't be too concerned about. You know? You're not this body, you're not this, these thoughts, yeah. you're not these sensations, you're not these feelings. Right? We forget so often that we're so much more. We get trapped in the illusion of this localized awareness and even though you just described the process of giving birth, we can apply this to any challenging part of life, where when we surrender, when we find that acceptance and we find that connection, and we just melt, to use your words. Yeah, don't resist. And we just expand ourselves to be more than just this thing that we're confronted with, and we stop resisting then yeah. we can allow something far greater than us come through us. Yeah. That's an awareness I wish that everybody could have. Because when we have that awareness, then we can be like Maya and say, fear, I don't have. Other people have that, but it's not something I have. I'm limitless. So what is there to be afraid of? There was one story where she wanted to bring her best girlfriend, Lainey, was quarantined with typhus, and she had scored some garlic that she wanted to 
cross through the mm-hmm. guards and bring to Lainey. A potent anti-inflammatory. Yes. <laughs> Anti-microbial. And uh, the guard was like, Mommy, I can't let you through. And this was a guard friend of hers at yeah. this point. He's like, I can't let you through. They're going to see me and I'm supposed to shoot you if you go through. She's like, you're not going to shoot me. He's like, I have to shoot you. Can you just please not? He's like, I'm trying to reason with her. He's like, can you just please not? Because I would prefer to not kill you, you know? She's like, shoot me today, shoot me tomorrow. You can only kill me once. And then she walked through. So then she goes and visits Lainey. Lainey told us her part of the story. Because of course, my grandma didn't share the very courageous thing she did. And Lainey thought she was hallucinating hearing my grandma's voice because she was so close to death. And then my grandma appeared. She's like, oh, that was real life. And my grandma's like, surprise, I brought you medicine. She's like, Manya, will you please let me die? I mean, any day now, I'm going to die. I can't believe you came here. You could have been shot. Um, please don't do this again. She's like, listen to me, Lainey. One day, you're going to heal. We're going to be all better. And we're going to be at my house. And we're going to have a glass of wine. And we're going to celebrate. She's like, Manya, can you just please let me rest? Just please, I can't handle it. Just please let me die. She goes, don't you die on me because I'm coming back tomorrow and bringing more medicine. And she's, you know. So then they parted ways. The next day she came back. Same thing. The guy's like, come on. <laughs> and it's the same thing. She's like, shoot me today. Shoot me tomorrow. Only kill me once. And then she walked by and brought her the garlic. And Lainey ended up surviving. And prophecy was fulfilled. They ended up at my grandma's house drinking wine, cheersing just to life itself, being alive. I wish I had a better reaction than being utterly speechless. <laughs> but perhaps... That starts to do it justice. Yeah. <laughs> her stories of that effect are incredible. How do you carry her in you these days? Well, I think about her a lot. I wear this ring that she gave me in her will that I so remember her always wearing all the time. So I'm afraid to wear it out of the house because it's so precious to me. <laughs> but um, I wear it around the house sometimes. Sometimes I wear it when I'm trying to gear myself up for something or I find I'm being fearful. And I know if she were here and I told her I was afraid of something, she would just all stop some sense into me. So I carry her with me that way. Um, I have pictures of her saved in my phone. I just, you know, I miss her a lot. And I think about her a lot. And I really credit her for every single thing I ever did that was brave. Because she would be, the stories of her are what gave me the perspective to realize this thing that I'm worried about is so small. You know, I'm healthy. Nobody's trying to kill me. My kids are healthy and safe. I know where they are. My husband's safe and home. Like, what, what did I think? Once I go through that and I think about what it was, I was stressed out about all I could do is laugh at myself and be like, I'm being ridiculous right now. And, you know, that makes so much sense, even from a scientific perspective, because, you know, when we're on, in the grips of stress or anxiety or fear or, we get really stuck on you know a certain perspective it just takes over our field of vision it just takes over our consciousness and that's all we see yeah and a dose of perspective like that can make this thing that we're grappling with seem so insignificant yeah yeah and so you know you were telling me earlier how in your work as a doctor of oriental medicine there's so many ways you use to manipulate um, energy in the body. What are some things that people watching and listening can, you know, do on themselves to self-regulate, to manage stress, to, you know, deal with pain, to deal with, you know, the different things that you see in your patients? One thing I think that's really important is having rituals. Rituals that are repeated every single day so they just become part of your daily living. And those rituals can set you up in the right space spiritually, like the ones that I have that set me up for a day of work. Um, But they can be done around all sorts of things to make sure that your habits reflect the person you want to be, you know, that they're in line. Because for a lot of people, the way that they're living, there's a disagreement they have inside, and it creates a lot of misery. And then their outward life is a reflection of those things. So... Firstly, we have to really clearly define where do you want to go? Where are we headed? Mm -hmm. What are your goals? What do you want to see change? And then 
how much are you willing to give of your energy, of your time, of your finances to create that change? Because this isn't something I do to you. This is something I do with you. And I guide you and I can educate you and teach you the things that I know. We have to be partners and form an agreement together, you know, so that when you go back into your life, you're doing these things and you're deeply committed to these things. So I would say you have to clearly define what do you want? What do you want? How do you, what's your highest, most ideal vision of what your health can be like or what your happiness can be like? And really sit with that, write that down and refine it. What is that specifically? And then let's make a plan in place to move in that direction. And the motto of my practice is progress all the time. Mm -hmm. There should always be progress. Sometimes, you know, you get the fun reaction where everything's healed in just a moment and it's done. And sometimes it's something slow we do over the course of years. But if the patient is doing their work, their lifestyle, their diet, their stress management, and coming here and we're making a plan, there should always be some progress all the time. One of your patients described a session with you as an hour-long hug. Mm -hmm. That was less a testimonial, more uh, one of the most profound things that anyone can say about someone in a, in a healing profession. What do you do differently? How do you approach this differently? That allows someone to feel so loved, so held, so supported, so safe. Wow. Um, I think I'm able to channel that love that they're meant to have. It's like their divine right, and I'm just able to channel it for them so that they can see it and they can experience it. And then once you experience being deeply loved, it's easier to love yourself. And when you love yourself, then you agree that you should be healthy. You agree that you should be successful. You agree that you deserve an hour off for a massage, for a walk, for a meditation, for yoga. And so you form an agreement with self-love and self-care. And so it's the first thing that should happen is love from the healer to the patient. And it's not my own love. I feel like it, it's not even my energy. That's why I can work all day and I feel tired at the end. It's just something channeled, but it's theirs always and meant for them, you know. Something I say all the time is the cause of all our problems is a lack of self-love. And yeah. the solution to all our problems is just more self-love. And, you know, it's incredible to make this, draw this line between our health and the degree to which we love ourselves and express it to ourselves. Because taking care of ourselves, taking care of our health and prioritizing it is actually a profound act of self-love. Yeah, it is. But very few people in the medical community actually approach it like that. They approach it as something that is fixed or managed or medicated or numbed. And the conversation around our bodies, the conversation around our health is so disconnected from our sense of self. Yeah. But what happens without love? You know, when you look at the studies of newborns that were never held and rocked versus ones that were just on their mother's breast whenever they needed and wanted to be there, they thrive cognitively, emotionally, you know, physically, whereas the ones that weren't given enough love even form cognitive deficits. It even damages their brain, you know. Everything needs love to survive and care. You know, and a lot of it we have to give to ourselves. So... How would someone who's an adult who's listening to this, who perhaps didn't have the most perfectly nurturing time growing up, what could they do today? What could, how could they, um, you know, I have my own set of practices I share, but I'd love for people to experience your magic in this sense. It's funny you just said the word practice because that's the word I was going to say. It's self-love should be a practice. You know, like I pre-book for myself all the days of the week, my yoga classes, um, and then work comes after that. So it's already in my schedule. It's pre-booked so that I have time for that. I've made it, you know, no matter how busy I get, I have to have that to be able to give a calm presence and focused attention, you know? Um, so I think everybody should really think about what makes them feel the most nurtured and the most loved, make a list of those things 
and the most at peace, and then you have to put it into your schedule, pre-plot it, where it's recurring reminders or recurring events, I mean, and that way you have a practice that's already done for you, you know? And hold that space because, you know, when I first tried that, and also to practice, I recommend to all my clients, right, if it's important to them to exercise, we book the, the time to exercise on the calendar. Now, when I first tried this, I, what I found was I often overrode that, that, that space. And what I find is that often we have a fundamental discomfort with open space. You know, especially as entrepreneurs, we try to fill every bit of open space with something because we have this manic desire to be productive. Oh, open right? space be, is a gift. Right? Boredom is a gift. It's a luxury, you know. Tell me how you relate to that. You know, I'm a mom. I have two kids, and it's not as busy now that they're in middle school that it used to be when they were little and they needed a lot more attention. Um, but, you know, I have a busy life. You know, I'm married. We have a house. I have a full-time practice, often with a waiting list. I've got the boys and friends and family, and there's a lot of different places the energy needs to go. Um, so there isn't a ton of empty space. So when there is empty space, you have to really deeply find a meaningful way to spend it so that you're not just in front of the TV or scrolling through your phone or distracting yourself with something else, you know, but doing something that's really recharging you. Not to say that I have that mastered by any means or that I always do that um, perfectly. You know, there's times where everyone gets burnt out and needs to reset. But by and large, for me, for me personally, that recurring reminder really helps and it's in its own color on the mm -hmm. calendar and there just has to be a certain amount of lavender in the week for the week to be worthwhile and meaningful and productive you know we should all have a certain amount of lavender in our week. That lavender is really important because if everything is red <laughs> <laughs> you play with colors too in your work yeah mm -hmm. yeah if everything is red that's highly stressful if nothing was red you feel listless and bored but you know is there a practice or an exercise that people can do with their bodies that, you know, in stressful times can help them de-escalate that? Yes. One thing that you can do is really take a few breaths and come to a quiet place and really feel your body's energetic. For a lot of people, they may feel a lot of activity in their head. They may feel pressure in temples. They could feel pressure in their heart, not in their stomach. Everyone is going to carry it in a different place, but tap into where you're stuck or congested energetically and play with moving it. Like if it's all in your head, you can play with moving it down. And if it's stuck in one tight knot, you can play with it with your breath, expand it outward and keep expanding out your energy field around you so that by the time you're finished with it and you take some clothing, closing breaths, you don't feel a stuckness anywhere. So you can move your own stuckness with your thoughts and with your mind, or you can come to a practitioner that can facilitate the movement of stuck places. Yeah. That's amazing. It's really powerful how the mind influences the body and then the body influences the mind. Yeah. I mean, all you have to do is have a sad thought to feel your heart sink or a joyful thought to feel it like, Dance, yeah. So we're, our body is entirely controlled by our mind and our thoughts. All of our emotions are chemicals that plug into receptors. And so like when you're angry and you release a big dose of cortisol, that can last for five hours. Wow. So it can profoundly affect you into the future. And then you go out into the world very like hot and agitated and stressed and you're disrupting others around you energetically, whether you interact or not. You know, like when someone walks into the room and they're, really intense and you don't even have to see them to know they're there you can like feel it in the room behind you and i just discovered yeah. this recently that there's something called an emotional refractory period you know when we get into an argument with our partners there's a certain time afterwards where if we keep engaging we're going to keep finding more reasons to pick a fight yeah and so you know this makes total sense because if we have elevated cortisol then our physiological reaction is, you know, we're in fight or flight or freeze. And, you know, anything that confirms that state is going to get preference 
versus something that's diametrically opposite. Other um, different oriental medicine techniques that you can use to um, calm the body or open up awareness or consciousness. I know you were sharing one to open the third eye earlier. Yeah, I can talk about that. Um, but I was also thinking of the practice of Qigong, mm -hmm. which we learn in school so that we can balance our own energy so that you don't come into the room to help someone else and you're needing help. But it's a series of movements where your hands mirror your breath. So it's like... All kinds of different movements this way, this way. And there's just many, many, many different ways to do it. But you can just pick one you like and just make a practice out of it. Do it regularly for 10 minutes and it will change your whole day. And it's amazing when, I, when I've when i tried it, it almost feels like I'm compressing something solid. Yeah. In between, I can actually feel the density of the energy mm -hmm. and collecting that energy ball. Even as I say this, like, I feel the the weight of the empty space. And we forget that so much of matter that we see, 99.999% is empty space. But if we put together all 7 billion people, the amount of matter would be a dime in a cathedral. And so we forget that we are actually just energy that's in motion. Yeah. Right? And because we have a lower frequency, we appear solid. And working with the body's energy, moving the energy, and manipulating the energy is, it seems like this should be basic education for every human being. Oh it's like an owner's manual for your body. Yeah. If everybody had that tool, oh, we would have a different world. If everyone knows how to make themselves peaceful and calm and manage their breath and come to a place of stillness, oh my gosh, you know, you'd be able to handle. Handle things like Monday did. Handle <laughs> things like Monday did. Yeah. Just without fear, without emotion, and just with a quiet mind. And we've come full circle. Yeah. <laughs> I told That's you, I think about her a lot. <laughs> well, I'm really, really grateful um, to be able to listen, to have heard the story, and to be able to share the story with, uh, with anyone who has occasion to listen. Debbie, where can people find you? <laughs> Um, my website, drvon.com, V-A-U-G-H-N, would be the easiest way. You can email me through the website. My number is there. Beautiful. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm looking forward to having you back. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you found value, please consider leaving a five-star review to allow the show to reach more people or share this episode via your social media channels. If you're an entrepreneur and want support in exponentially scaling your business, email me at ani at animanian.com.